who blessed us with those wonderful, wholesome songs that we don't necessarily hear anymore. The good stuff. Happy feelings. I'm not going to start. Y'all going to make me start. <laughs> Y'all going to make me start. Joy and pain. Y'all going to, come on. Y'all going <laughs> to, look at California. Y'all going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to stop. 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 But it was great. We had a great time. We had a great time. If you haven't, if you haven't ever heard, look him up. You'll find out. It's good music. Good, good soul music. Good music that'll just take you to a place. And so we had a wonderful time. Uh, last night. So I wanted to say that because some of y'all are thinking, how in the world? He was in Dallas last night. He ain't going to be worth nothing. I may not be worth anything, but I'm here. <laughs> no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm ready to preach this message. We are continuing today in our series in the book of Romans. We've covered all of chapter one. So today we pick up in chapter two. So today we'll be in Romans chapter two, verses one through verse 16 is where our reading will come from today, and our message will be coming from that. Uh, Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. If you would be so kind, would you stand with me as we read this passage together from Romans chapter 2, as it is written by the Apostle Paul. He writes these words. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your, your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, or by Christ Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. From this passage in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, I like to talk today about perfect justice. Perfect justice. Uh, in the world in which we live, unfortunately, injustice is an age-old problem. Injustice. Justice is, in fact, a rather precarious proposition 
all over the world, even within the best of systems. I realize that we believe with all that's within us, with all of our hearts, uh, me included, that we live in the best country in all the world. Somebody say amen right there. Uh, and because of this, though, uh, we tend to think that our justice system is also the best in the world. But that's actually far from true. The World Justice Project publishes what they call the Rule of Law Index annually. This index ranks the justice systems of 126 countries around the world. They use eight factors to determine scores and rankings in this index. First thing that they use, first factor they use, uh, are the constraints on government powers. Then abuse, uh, absence rather, of corruption, open government, fundamental rights, order and security, regulatory enforcement, civil justice and criminal justice. They use all eight of these factors to determine the ranks and the scores on this index. There's generally, from year to year, not much change in rankings unless there's some type of significant shift in that country in ideology or governmental structure from year to year. Normally, the countries rank pretty close to where they did without much variance from where they ranked last year. Uh, the U.S. is always, ne it's never, by the way, at the top of the list, but it's always every year in the top third of that list. Uh, usually somewhere around 19 or 20. I don't know, that may surprise some of you because some of you probably thought that our justice system is just the best in all the world. We usually rank somewhere around 19 or 20. In fact, in the 2019 report, the, U the U.S.'s justice system ranks number 20 in the current report. Uh, just by way of information, let me share with you the top 10 on the list. Top 10 on the list, number one is Denmark. Number two is Norway. Number three is Finland. Number four is Sweden. Number five, the Netherlands. Number six, Germany. Number seven, Austria. Number eight, New Zealand. Number nine, Canada. And number 10 is Estonia. As good as our system is, and as well as some of these others are uh, that are perennially at the top of the list. They are all, all of them, including ours, all of these systems are flawed and fallible. There is, there's potential for mistake. There's potential for uh, injustice in all of these world justice systems. For instance, we can better appreciate the challenges of, say, a criminal justice system by considering uh, some causes of injustice and obstacles to justice in these various justice systems around the world. Things like uh, the fact that there is often no one law for all. We know that. One major problem uh, of criminal justice systems all over the world is the fact that today, how much justice you get may involve who you are or how much you have. That could determine the level of justice that you get. In some, places, in some places, justice can depend on a person's ability to hire an expensive lawyer. Not to mention the issues of discrimination all over the world, not just here, all over the world. That's an issue in the justice systems. Uh, in fact, a National Council on Crime reported 
this. They said those caught up in the system are overwhelmingly the poor, the lower class, members of minority groups, immigrants, foreigners, persons of low intelligence, and others who are in some way at a disadvantage. Those who have a good chance of escaping the system are the affluence criminals, corporate criminals, white-collar criminals, professional criminals, organized criminals, and intelligent, if there's such a thing, intelligent criminals. Uh, so, so first problem is, is that there's no one law throughout the world, no one law for all. Then second challenge is this, unfair sentences. Unfair sentences. Even if the law is clear and it applies to all, rendering just sentences can still be a problem. For instance, the New York Post reported that in one federal judicial district, 71% of all convicted defendants go to prison, while in another district, only 16% are imprisoned for uh, those that are convicted of similar charges. 71% in one district, 16% in another, unfair, inequitable sentencing. Then the next challenge we have those, the next challenge is uh, corruption and incompetence. These challenge the justice systems all over the world. Corruption and incompetence. Because of corruption and incompetence in high places, untold numbers of people have suffered. They have been wrongly confined to asylums and prisons and have even been sentenced to death. On a lesser scale, businesses have, lost, have been lost. Estates forfeited. Licenses denied because of corruption and incompetence. So that's another challenge. Another challenge is uh, the unreliability of witnesses and even sometimes law enforcement. According to Judge Rolf Bender of Germany, of Germany, a, Germany a judge in Germany, in 95% of all criminal cases, statements from witnesses are decisive as evidence. But are all of these witnesses always reliable is the question. Judge Bender thinks not. He estimates that half the witnesses who appear in court tell untruths. Witnesses are human and they are fallible. So are sometimes law enforcement. All of us are human and fallible, particularly following a crime that causes public outrage, the police. Now let me say this before I, before I continue along this line. I'm 100% in favor and behind law enforcement. I back the blue, Brother Robert, I'm on, I'm on your side. But the reality is, is that we're all human. And all of us are fallible, and all of us are susceptible to making mistakes, right? And so then, especially in cases uh, where there is a high level of attention, uh, in, in, in cases and crimes where there's, there's public outrage, the police can come under pressure to make an arrest. There's pressure involved, just like on your job. They face pressure, too. Under such circumstances, individual, individuals have succumbed to the temptation to manufacture evidence or to force suspects to confess when they really didn't commit the crime. We've all seen it all. How many of y'all watch those crime shows? I just love, hey, man, somebody, one person is, is willing to confess. Y'all know I can spend all day in front of TV watching, watching those crimes. I just love them because I love the whodunit aspect. I want to I try to sit there and figure out, man, this is amazing to see them at work. Sometimes 
We see corruption. Sometimes we see fallibility, fallibility in those things. Uh, so, so those are some challenges in every system, no matter how good or how bad, uh, Brother bro Sam, no matter how good or how bad that system is in every system. Sometimes the innocent are convicted, the guilty are acquitted, or maybe not even ever charged at all. And sentencing in the best of systems can oftentimes be inequitable. There are challenges to justice systems all over the world. Full justice is indeed very difficult for mankind to achieve. Full justice is difficult for mankind to achieve. You ought to already know where I'm getting ready to go with this. Let me say it one more time. You can help me preach this sermon. Full justice is difficult for mankind, let me stress that word, to achieve. Uh, full justice is difficult for mankind. To, that is not the case with God. It's not the case with God. It's not difficult for God to achieve full, full justice because for God, judgment and justice are not just a fallible attempt at an ideal construct, but rather they are an infallible and an immutable certainty. Justice, judgment are certain. Full justice and just judgment, certain with God, where we are fallible. I'm not, I'm not making this up. It's not just something I made up. In fact, Paul supports this argument. In our text today, in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, Paul supports this very argument. You'll recall last week in chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, Paul helped us to take a look at God's perfect love as revealed in his wrath to the pagan Gentile world. We looked at the reason for God's wrath, the consequences of God's wrath, and the solution for God's wrath being Jesus Christ who took our place. That's where we went at the end of last week's sermon, and, and let me just give you a preview. Uh, we're going there again today. I love to end everyone. I, we may not go to the cross, but we're going to talk about Jesus. Because Jesus is the solution and the answer to all of our situations and circumstances and problems. He took our place. I feel like Barabbas. Because Barabbas uh, was so happy when Jesus got on the cross for him. He took our place. Now beginning in chapter 2. Of the, of the letter to the Romans, Paul turns his attention away from the Gentiles and the pagans to the Jews who may have been feeling superior to the Gentiles. And they may have been feeling like they were, they were in no danger of judgment themselves. You know how some folks can get all high and mighty and pious and thinking, well, that's not for me. You know, you can be sitting there and the message that whoever's preaching, maybe it's not me just cutting and hitting and coming down your street, stopping at your address and all that stuff, reading your mail, and still you saying, that's not, oh, he's talking about them, he's not talking about me. That's the reason why I'll tell you anytime that I'm preaching to myself while I preach to anybody else. It hits me, Kevin, before it hits anybody else. I, I'm telling you, I, you, can't, you cannot feel like you are uh, not uh, uh, exposed, if you will, or God's judgment is not for you. Because of the, you are, just as the Jew, in danger of judgment. Paul discusses the impending judgment of God against sin in chapter 2. In doing so, he helps us to understand just what the judgment of God is about. Who will be affected by it and what the results of God's 
judgment will be. That's what Paul addresses in this, the first part of chapter 2. Uh, he, he, he deals with that. Let's read again real quickly verses 1 through 5. 1 through 5 say this. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do themselves, do them, them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of God, riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hand, your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There's a big thought in this first passage in, in verses 1 through 5. The big thought, big idea that Paul is trying to get across in verses 1 through 5 is this. Judgment is of God, not man. Judgment is of God, not man. So then the question I hear you asking is why? Why is judgment of God and not of you? Why is, why is God the only one who is able, who is equipped, who is the one who will judge? Why? Well, there's a couple of reasons uh, that Paul kind of brings out of the text for us. A couple of reasons. First reason is this, because God's judgment or his justice is perfect. It, it's perfect. It, it's, it, it, it's perfect. It is absolutely without imperfection. He is the only purveyor of perfect justice in all of history. And there will be, never be another one like him. He is the only one who is perfect. In fact, uh, Joseph Addison says it this way, to be perfectly just is an attribute of the divine nature. It's in, the, it's in, it's in scripture all throughout your Bible. In particular, there are some verses in Revelation that help us understand this. Revelation 15.3 says this, And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Revelation 16.7 says, And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Revelation 19, 1 and 2 says, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory, power and honor belong to our God, for his judgments are just and true. So then, unlike the fallible and flawed justice systems of mankind, the impending judgment of God will not be affected by corruption. It will not be affected by missing evidence. It will not be affected by circumstantial evidence of faded recollections. It will not be affected by discrimination. It will not be affected by unreliable witnesses. It will not be affected by unfair and inequitable consequences. God's judgment, my brothers and sisters, is perfect. God makes no mistakes in his judgment. He does not make a mistake in his judgment, and that's the reason why God is the judge and not you. Because his judgment, his justice is without mistake. His justice and his judgment are perfect. Second reason, there's another reason in the text, and it's this. Because man can be hard-hearted, impenitent, 
hypocrites. I know that's a tough pill to swallow, but I didn't make it up. That's what Paul says, right? Man, I, I said can be. I didn't say are. You know, when I was writing this, I had R in there, and I thought, you know, somebody may not, it may, but really I should have left R in there. <laughs> I, you can get Cody say he can change it back. So here's the thing. At our core, that's who we are. And without intervention from a divine God, a divine perfect Savior, that is who, not, that's not who we can be. It's who we are. Can be hard-hearted, impenitent, hypocrites. Look at verse 1. Verse 1, we've already looked at it. Paul says this, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you have who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Anybody ever know anybody that does that? Anybody know anybody that does that? So, so, so here's the other reason. This is the reason why we don't qualify. We don't qualify to be judges because we oftentimes are hard-hearted. Oftentimes we're impenitent. We don't want to repent. And a lot of times we are hypocritical. In chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, Paul uses they, them, and their 23 times. But in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, the emphasis shifts from the one finger pointing at they, them, and their to the three fingers pointing back at you, yourself, and your, which he uses, by the way, 14 times in just these five verses. He shifts from the emphasis being on them to it being on you. And so then, suddenly them in chapter 1 becomes you in chapter 2. A hypocrite. What's a hypocrite? A hypocrite is someone who merely plays a part. They pretend to be someone in something that they're not. Appearances say one thing, but contents and reality say something else. There's one way when people are watching. Don't look at nobody. <laughs> and they're different when nobody is watching. Uh, hypocrites condemn others for doing the same things that they themselves do. Uh, Charles Spurgeon says this about the hypocrite. Uh, because, look, look, watch this. We are known for putting on airs. And we used to call it, when I was growing up, Brother Rob, we used to call it perpetrating. <laughs> We're known for perpetrating. Here's what Charles Spurgeon says about perpetrators. He says, no one is so miserable as the poor person who maintains the appearance of wealth. Isn't that something? You, you can shake and fake all you want to. You can, act, you can drive the finest car, live in the finest, wear the finest clothes, but all the while going broke and feeling miserable trying to impress folks. That's the definition of a hypocrite. It's better to just be yourself. My daddy says something good about it. My dad, that's, that's who Thomas Garner is. He's my dad. This is what my dad says. My dad says, those who you think is ain't. And those who you think ain't is. That come right out of the mouth of my daddy. My daddy, man, he got some stuff now. He said he's a sidewalk preacher. <laughs> so that, what does that mean? It means the ones that are perpetrating, right? Those are the ones. So, so folks, that is, you'll never know it. But most folks, what is is? I don't know. Is could be anything. Not just talking about material wealth. Is. Those that is, you, you, you oftentimes never know it. Uh, hypocrites are that. That, that. That's what hypocrites are. Uh, but then 
C.S. Lewis says something. He says uh, this about those of us who are religious hypocrites. Of all bad men, Lewis says, religious bad men are the worst. And let me just say this right now before we go any further. Because I'm getting ready to kick it into high gear in a minute. I got just a few minutes. I'm getting ready to kick it up. But let me say this. Everywhere you see men or men, because I'm, I'm coming down your way now. Because I know y'all ladies like, this is not for me. Because there's a whole lot of talk about men in this. And I'm, I'm out. Everywhere you see men, <laughs> it's generic. <laughs> it means all people. <laughs> and Lewis says, of all bad people, religious people are the worst. Bad people, right? That's what he says. Uh, they are people, hypocrites are people, who would condemn the actions listed in the latter part of chapter 1, but who have no intention of getting right with God themselves. These people look right outwardly, but inwardly they are guilty of many of the same sins of the wicked that Paul mentions in chapter 1. We don't have to go back to that list. Y'all remember that, remember that long list at the end of chapter 1? Uh, and I told you last week that all of us fit somewhere on that list. But at the same time, we're looking at that list saying, man, those sad, sorry people. I'm sure glad I'm not one of them. Sound like one of the Pharisees. But Paul says, uh, we're, 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 we're being hypocritical when we say that. Because somewhere you can find us on that list. Uh, God's judgment is not only reserved for those who openly disobey God, but also for those who pretend not to but really do. Let that sit in for a minute. Uh, hip hypocrisy and self-righteousness is addressed many times in Scripture and is never seen, anywhere it's addressed, it's never seen as good. In Matthew 23, Jesus says this to those Pharisees. He says, woe to you scribes and Pharisees. He calls them hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, he says, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate the, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, he says to the Pharisees, you scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites, he calls them, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Hypocrisy is never a good thing in Scripture or in life. And Paul says in verses 1 through 5 that we don't qualify to be judges. Only God does. Because we fall oftentimes into that category. Then secondly, let's look at how God judges. How does God judge? We see that in verses 6 through 11. In verses 6 through 11, uh, it helps us to, to understand how God meets out his judgment and justice. Verses 6 through 11. In verses 6 through 11, Paul employs, employs what's known as a chiastic structure to make his point. Uh, so, so what that looks like is this. It looks like this. Uh, in, in verse 6, he said, it, 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 it notes that God uses everyone, a God, so I'm sorry, judges everyone the same. And then in verse 7, life is a reward for doing good. Verse 8, wrath, you have A, B, C, then you have C, B, A. Verse, one, uh, verse 6, God judges everyone the same. Verse 7, life is a reward for doing good. 
Verse 8, wrath is the penalty for evil. Verse 9, wrath for doing evil. Verse 10, life for doing good. It's a structure that Paul uses to help us see how God meets out his judgment. Uh, then verse 11, God shows no favoritism, which goes back to mirroring verse 6. Verse 11, mirror. They mirror each other. And so verse 6 says, he will render to each one. He will render to each one. Every person will be judged according to their own merits. According to their own merit. You will not pay for the sins of another. Neither will another man be judged or woman be judged for your sins. God's judgment will be fair and tailored, tailor-made to each individual. It will be specifically tailored for you. Verses 6 and 7, he says this, according to his works, to those, he says, who by patience in well-doing well seek for glory and honor in immortality, he will give eternal life. That's, some, that's, that's a strange thing to say coming from Paul. It almost, if you didn't know any better, it almost seems to contradict what Paul says in other places. It's a strange thing to say coming from somebody like Paul who does not teach or preach a works-based salvation. So the question is, why would he say so? What does he mean by that? What, what does Paul, what is he referencing by saying it's according to his works? Well, Paul here is not overlooking the great doctrine of salvation by grace as found in Ephesians 2. He is, however, stressing that believers ought to act like believers. And that works demonstrates the heart's true condition. That's what works do. Works are an outpouring of what's already on the inside. He lists in this passage, he lists three qualities of the eternal life. He talks about glory. Glory is an existence with no weakness or defilement. It's the manifestation of God himself. Then he talks about honor. What is that? It refers to the approval of God. And immortality, he says, those who seek these things, those who are after these things, never-changing joy of being in God's presence. That's what immortality is. And then in verses 8 and 9, uh, a person who continually does evil and rejects the truth shows that he is living for himself rather than for God. For this reason, they will not escape the wrath of God for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury. Those who are self-seeking. Uh, in verse 8, he uses this phrase, self-seeking. It's the Greek word erythea. It's the Greek word erythea. It, it, it means self-ambition. It means strife. It means pursuing one's own welfare. One's interest before the interest of others. If that is what we are about, God's not pleased with that. He's not pleased with us being self-seeking. Then in verse 10, he makes reference to this. He says in verse 10, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. How, how, how can we do good? I don't even know how to do good. I try. But my good often ends up bad. I, do, I don't even really know 
apart from God, I really don't even know how. So, but Paul says, uh, everyone who does good. What, what does Paul mean there? It is an outward evidence of the inward change in the heart. Paul, he describes it in another letter, the letter that he writes to the Ephesians. Uh, he writes in chapter 2, verse 10. Uh, Robert talked about it this morning in, in, in Sunday school. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's how we do good. There has to be a change on the inside. If there's no change on the inside, you don't even realize or know how to do good. The things that you think are good end up being bad because there's not been a change on the inside. That's what Paul is referencing here in verse 10 in this passage. In verse 11, he talks about, uh, for God shows no partiality. God's not a respecter of persons. He treats everyone the same. He looks at all of us the same. Nobody is better than somebody else. There's no partiality in God. There is no respect of persons with God. Everyone with God is equal. Every person, believer and unbeliever, Jew and Gentile, is going to have to give an account of himself or herself before God. Everybody. No partiality. Uh, then we move on uh, to that. To, let's, to, so we talk about how God judges. Next, I want to tell you that being a hearer is not good enough. Being a hearer only is not good enough. God's impartiality and judgment is seen in that both Jew and Gentile alike are to be judged equally and fairly. Being a Jew does not guarantee heaven. On the contrary, just having the law and knowing the law is not enough. The Jews knew the law backwards and forwards, inside. In fact, it was given to them for anybody else even knew what the law was. They received it first. They knew the law. They could quote the Old Testament scriptures without looking at anything. They could preach from it. They could tell you about it. That's the reason why they cornered Jesus so many times. And they thought they had him so many times because they knew the law. But James says you've got to be more in chapter 1, verse 22. You cannot just be a hearer only. You've got a book. And that's a word for us today. Many of us, notice I said us. Yeah, right, Robert, I'm talking about us, right? Many of us know scripture. Are we living the book? God wants us, when we leave the four walls, the confines of this place, God wants us to walk it out in the community. He does not want us to just tell people what we heard about him. Tell people what we read about him. Show how smart we are in the scriptures. He says it's more important to do the word than to just know the word. So Paul says to the Jew who's feeling all self-righteous, and pious. Yeah, I, I, I know you. I know the Jews received the law of God first. I know that they have an intricate knowledge and an intimate knowledge of the law. But listen, it's more important to do it than to just know it. Being a hero is not enough. And then we made it. It's been tough, but we made it to the good part. Verse 16 is the good part. It may not sound like it initially, 
But I promise you, verse 16 is the good part. Because in verse 16, we find out that Christ Jesus and all this judgment talk and all this ju uh, justice talk, we find out in verse 16 that Christ Jesus is the agent. And that's good news. Because you wouldn't want anybody else to be the agent of justice or judgment for you besides Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the agent. It says this, on that day, what's that day? The day of judgment. See, in chapter 1, Paul's talking about the, 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 the wrath that is present right now. In chapter 2, he shifts Robert, to the future judgment and the future wrath that all of us will have to face. And Paul says in verse 16, on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. I wouldn't want anybody else being my judge. Now, that's, that's a tough one because here's the thing. He's going to judge the secret things. <laughs> that's a tough one. The secret things. You know those things you thought nobody knew about. It's, it's like, you know, my son just started playing football, uh, seventh grade football. Had his first game last Thursday. And the coaches said, on Friday, we're going to have a film session. And I remember Brother Kimmy, when we were growing up at John Tyler, somebody give a shout-out, John Tyler, shout-out real quick. I know they lost. It's okay. <laughs> we played football for Coach Bill Parks, Jimmy Franklin, all them hard notes. We had film session. And in film session, everything you did on the field that you thought nobody saw, you know, when you missed that block, you know, when you dropped that pass, you know, when you missed your assignment, and we had film session in groups so that the quarterbacks, I played quarterback, the quarterbacks went with their group, the linemen, so that the, the line coach could point out and pick out your position. Film session was a tough pill to swallow. Because all, all the time you thought you were, you were getting away with something. They didn't say anything to you during the game. They didn't say anything to you after the game in the locker room. Uh, everything was hunky-dory. You thought everything was fine. But when the, when the film session hits, they call you out in front of everybody. It's the secret things that Jesus will judge those things that you thought nobody knew about. He is the agent. Everything is filtered through Christ. Everything. Rick Warren, in his popular best-selling book, The Purpose Driven Life, says that there will only be two questions asked on that day. The second question will be, what did you do with what I gave you? That's the second question. That's not the most important one, but that's, that's the second question. Jesus will ask, what did you do with what I gave you? What did you do with your life? What did you do with the gifts, talents, opportunities, energy, relationships, and resources that God gave you in life? Jesus is going to ask that question on that day as he's judging the what did you do with what I gave you? That's not the most important question, though. The most important one is question number one. Question number one is what did you do with me? What, what did you do with me? What did, what, what did you do? It's, it's the most important question in life. What did you do with me? It's the question Pilate asked when they brought Jesus to him to crucify him. Pilate says, what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? What shall I do? That, that, that's some options. That, that's some options that we have. Uh, five options, in fact. Four of these are bad. One of them is good. Uh, you can, you can, number one, you can ignore him. 
That's what you can do with Christ. Number two, you can shift the decision to someone else. You can do that with Christ, and hopefully somebody else will make a decision for you. And number three, you can simply admire him. You can be impressed with him but not persuaded about him. Number four, you can remain neutral on neutral ground. Then all those are bad. Lastly, here's a good one. You can fall at his feet, worship him, adore him, and surrender to him so that on that day, during the film session of life, and he asks you the question, what did you do with what I gave you? You can tell him what you did. And then he says, well, what did you do with me? And you can say, Jesus, because he's going to already know the answer. I fell at your feet. I worshiped you. I adored you. I, I praised you. I surrendered to you. Jesus is the agent. And the question is, what will you do with Jesus? There's a poem by Cindy Wyden, and we're going to close this thing. Poem, poem says this. It's entitled, What Will You Do With Jesus? She says, what will you do with Jesus is the question all must answer. Will you reject his gift of salvation or accept him as Savior? Will you come to him in faith for payment of your sin dues? Or will you just go on your way and not think about eternal issues? What will you do with Jesus? Will your answer be yes or no? To any sinner who comes to him, his answer is always, I love you so. His love for you is so great that he would never turn you away. He will save your soul and I forgive you, he will say. That wasn't him. <laughs> that, that, the, the most pressing, the most important question that all of us are faced with right now, what are you going to do with him? What are you going to do with Jesus? Because we can't escape the fact that he will be the agent. We'll stand before him. Here, th there's good news. Jesus, there's both good and bad. Jesus is the agent. That's sometimes for some is bad news, but it's also good news because watch this. The believer, because of that, the believer can rest assured that God's judgment is tempered by love. The love of God, in fact, reaches across his bar of justice to reassure the trembling person that divine justice, and we're all going to be trembling because we're not really going to know for sure where we stand. <laughs> right? Can you imagine standing before Jesus on that day, trembling, wondering, Jesus, uh, uh, what, what's my film going to say about me? But here it is, those of us that are believers have the assurance to know. As we're trembling, standing before God, we have the assurance to know that his judgment and his justice are tempered by his perfect love. He loves us so much. So we can relax. Because we have hopefully given him our hearts. But... For those that haven't, this is your opportunity. As I extend now the invitation, there may be somebody who's here, doesn't know this Jesus, who's going to be the agent, doesn't know Jesus, and you think, well, I need to get this thing right, because I know in the game I've done some stuff that's going to come out in the film session. Yes, sir. Right now is your chance. 
Would you stand if, you, if you're that person? Would you stand? If you want to give Jesus your heart, would you stand? While we pray, Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love, your love that's perfect. Thank you for your judgment that's perfect, your justice that's perfect. A perfect agent in Jesus, a perfect savior in Jesus, perfect in all your ways. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Then we want to also give the opportunity for those that may be here that have a desire, that have been coming. Uh, maybe this is your first time and you'd like to unite with us and be a member of the Bethel Hope Campus. We'd love for you to do that. So if you're that person, I'm going to ask you to stand, raise your hand, do something. Scratch your nose. It can be like an auction. <laughs> Like, I don't want nobody to see me, but I want to. Nah, if whatever, you stand, we'll certainly get you the information you need to begin the process of becoming a member of our church. Uh, anybody here like, like to do that? Anybody? Like the auction, going once. <laughs> Thank God for you today. Thank God for you today. Trust him. He's good. We thank you for being with us. We have many guests. I want to tell you what, let's do this and we ain't going to have a benediction. If you're visiting us for the first time, would you stand? First time visitors. We thank God that you chose to worship with us today. We pray that you come back again and be with us. I know you could have gone anywhere. We thank you that you came to Bethel Hope today. Hopefully, you've, we've been as much of a blessing to you as you've been to us, and we thank God for you. Come back and see us whenever uh, the Lord leads you to. Amen. Amen. Let's, don't forget, next Sunday, 930, for those that are being baptized, need you to be here to do the training. Baptism will be the 22nd, the following Sunday, right after service. Uh, don't forget all the announcements and all things that are happening. We have a million and one things that are going on, which is good.